Hey everyone, Dr. Pat and I would personally like to invite you to join us in our Grow My Baby program. This is week-by-week pregnancy and birth information developed from our experience of helping more than 4,000 women grow and birth their babies. All our links are on our website, growmybaby.com.au. The information in this podcast is provided for education and research information only. It is not a substitute for professional health advice. If you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you feel a little bit overwhelmed by all you need to know, then this is the right podcast for you. Welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And this is The Kick, your expert-led podcast that delivers the essentials of growing a baby. Make sure you head to our website, growmybaby.com.au, to get some awesome free tools like our Pregnancy Knowledge Checker to help you feel like you got this. Welcome back to The Kick Pregnancy Podcast. I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney, and I'm sorry to say I'm here by myself today. It's a bit lonely here in the studio. I've got my feet up. Uh, my um, co-host, Bridget, is uh, got well, she got caught up in the most recent round of COVID, so she's at home in our guest bedroom, isolating but recovering. So I'm on my own. Bear with me. And we get, we've got a terrific show, though. We've got a bunch of um, speak pipes to hear directly from you guys. And you know I love this, right? It, it's um, such a great way to find out what's really on your mind and um, hopefully uh, help you out. So let's go to the first one, which is from Angie. And we're actually going to play two together because these ones are about very similar topics. So we'll hear from Angie and then we'll hear from Laura on the speak pipe. Hi, Dr. Pat and Bridget. Um, Thanks for providing such a great evidence-based podcast to help navigate the uh, scary things of pregnancy. I am currently about five weeks pregnant with my second pregnancy. My first one ended in a miscarriage. Um, a missed miscarriage, uh, and I have a question about exercise in pregnancy. I um, lift weights at the gym and I also surf, and I was wondering how safe these activities were to continue in early pregnancy and whether they impact on, um, you know, the rate of miscarriage or anything like that. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Pat and Bridget. My name is Laura. I love your show. Thank you so much. Um, I am trying to conceive for my second child and recently started a high intensity training, um, known as F45. And I was just wondering, um, when trying to conceive whether high intensity training should be off the cards, there's really, um, conflicting information online about this. I find it's really great for my mental health and feeling good, um, training, but I also don't want to impact ovulation, um, or like trying to conceive an implantation. So I'm really just wondering what your thoughts are. Um, as, as I said, Google has multiple answers. Um, and also, if I do become pregnant, whether I can continue with high-intensity training, I know that obviously anything that makes me feel physically uncomfortable, I should stop, but I am wondering, is it okay to continue with a high-intensity class um, during pregnancy? Thank you so much. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thanks for both of those um, listeners for giving us their story on the speak pipe and their terrific and and obviously related questions. Um, If we go back to uh, Angie, I'm sorry to hear you had a first trimester miscarriage, 
but I think you can be very, very uh, confident that the exercise you're doing in early pregnancy is good for you, that it is keeping a normal body weight, that it's a, that it's helping your mental health, and it's doing a lot of beneficial things that are going to help you in the pregnancy. One thing it's not doing is causing a miscarriage. So we know, uh, we don't know the cause of 100% of miscarriages, but we know that a lot of missed miscarriages, the problem is DNA errors that happen right back at the start of the pregnancy when the sperm first meets the egg. It's like a giant zip with half the DNA on one side from mum and half the DNA on one side from dad. And that big zip, just like an ordinary zip on your pants, doesn't always work properly. If one or two little DNA errors happen, then you can get a pregnancy that can go to six or seven weeks, but no further. And those sort of things are really important, but we know that exercise is safe. We would know uh, 100% from observation that if people who seem to be doing some intense exercise were more likely to miscarriage, that's, that's a pattern we would have picked up. Now, the trying to conceive one, it is ba- the answer is basically the same. High-intensity exercise, that's fine. If that's what's good for your physical and mental health, that's fantastic. The only issue with trying to conceive is that if we've got, it's normally like an elite athlete type, uh, type picture, but if people are doing an awful lot of exercise and dramatically dropping body weight, then that can affect ovulation. I don't think there's any evidence at all that it affects implantation, but ovulation, yes. So if you're well under a healthy body weight or well under uh, the ideal body weight for ovulating, then sometimes your body will just shut that down. Now, you would know because you would also stop menstruating, most likely. And that's something that you would realize was a problem. So what I always recommend for women who are doing intensive exercise is just the use of those ovulation predictor kits. Because if you're still ovulating and the the predictor kit shows that you're ovulating and you're having a regular period which shows that you're ovulating, then the level of exercise is what you want it to be, but um, it's not going to affect chances of conception. Okay, let's move on. We've got uh, plenty more to discuss. This is Hannah on the SpeakPipe. Hi, Dr. Pat. This is Hannah. I am 16 weeks pregnant with baby number two. With my first baby, my waters broke at 38 weeks and three days, and I went into spontaneous labor um, within hours of that happening but my labor lasted 48 hours and I ended up in an emergency C-section because my daughter's position was just not favorable. I'm just wondering what the likelihood second time around is of my water breaking prior to 39 weeks and going into natural labor and a potential successful VBAC would be. Terrific question um, and thanks for sharing that, Hannah. This this is uh, an area of real interest of of mine. I I love um I love VBACs, and uh, part of part of undertaking um, a vaginal birth after a previous Caesar, I think, is high levels of understanding by the woman and her and her partner about the risks and benefits of doing that, but also about the chances of of success if we define success by uh, a vaginal birth as an outcome. Uh, so um, first things first, there's nothing in particular about your first labour and how that unfolded that really makes me concerned about success for next time. So that that labour was what it was. It was um, it was uh, uh, it, it unfolded in in the way that it did. And uh, yes, you had a cesarean section. I'm sure. I hope that both you and the baby were well. We turn our attention to the VBAC situation. 
Um, when we're trying for uh, a VBAC, we can discuss it as much as we like, but ultimately VBAC success, the cards need to sort of fall our way. Okay. And we know that the best situation for that, that, that most correlates with a vaginal birth as an outcome is if you come into spontaneous labour at term. And that's why we really, really, really want to avoid the situation, if at all possible, where induction and intervention needs to be used. Now, sometimes that's just, sometimes we need to. Like sometimes if we run into a problem like hypertension, preeclampsia, diabetes, the risks of um, not inducing may be way worse than the risks of inducing. And we and after full discussion, that's that's what we do when we take our chances in terms of the VBAC. But it's very nice if none of those other problems come up. The couple come into spontaneous labour at term and uh, that correlates with the highest success rates. So I think the simple answer to your question is there's nothing in particular about your first labour that makes me think you're a bad candidate. It'll become clear throughout the rest of this uh, pregnancy whether you're a good candidate. And what we're looking for is that we don't develop any, if you like, contraindications, reasons not to do a VBAC, that um, the baby stays head first and well down, and probably critically that um, that if, if it's at all possible, we can wait for someone to come into spontaneous labour at term. And that's, that's the, the step that correlates most highly with... Um, Vaginal birth as an outcome. Good luck. Okay, moving along. This is uh, Morgan, and Morgan has contacted us through the SpeakPipe as well. So let's let's hear Morgan's story. Hi, Dr. Pat and Bridget. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. I love how it feels like I'm having a conversation with old friends on the couch when I listen to you. So I appreciate you a lot. Um, with my first baby, I went to hospital with decreased fetal movement at 41 and 4, where they decided to keep me in and induce me. At 41 and 6, I had my waters popped um, and then I was put on Pitocin. So with shocking contractions, I ended up getting an epidural, um, which actually ended up totally wearing off within the next three hours. And the midwife got me to start pushing at about 8 p.m., where I was advised the baby was stuck and the doctor was coming with forceps. The doctor tried to manually... Um, turn her with his hand, which he did succeed with, but the next contraction, she turned back around. Um, So then two sets of forceps got her head out and then I pulled her out from the shoulders, which was pretty cool. Um, My birth resulted in a grade two tear, postpartum hemorrhage, but a bladder prolapse. So I wear a ring pessary with support to this day. Um, my question is, for my next birth, would you suggest a C-section? And what is your experience with people who have a prolapse and then have a C-section? I'm worried about cutting through my core when my floor is already extremely stretched. But on the flip side, I don't want to want my prolapse to worsen from having a natural birth again. So any advice, I would be super grateful. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to The Kick with Dr. Pat and Bridget. How many times have you Googled something about your pregnancy? When I was pregnant all the time, Dr. Pat. (laughs) We get it. You may be confused or overwhelmed. It's normal to want information, but where's the reliable stuff from experts? Yeah. Now, if you like our podcast... 
Dr. Pat and I have developed an online program to help guide you through whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. It's taken us literally two years to put it together. Two long, hard years, wasn't it? (laughs) But, you know, it is a game changer in how pregnancy information is given. Now, how it works is uh, you get to sign up at whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. Like, So you could be pre-pregnant in your very early stages of pregnancy, late pregnancy, preparing for birth, or maybe you've just brought your baby home. And you get lots of information around that. And then you also get to join our closed Facebook group. We've called in all our contacts too. So we've got a dietitian, an anaesthetist, physiotherapist. Sonographer. Yeah, who else? A pediatric nurse, obstetrician, mother of four. Oh, just all the people you need to hear from. So if that's you, come and join us at www.growmybaby.com.au. Well, uh, Morgan, that is a cracking question. Um, and thank you for getting in touch with it. That's brilliant. So firstly, you've, you've had a doozy of a first birth there. And, and um, uh, there's a couple of things um, that I want to say about that. One is that um, uh, good on you for turning your attention towards having another one. That is fantastic. You you have had a, a difficult, complicated, um, uh, interventional um, first birth, and I and I um, I trust you and the baby are safe. Um, and it's a it's a testament to your resilience that you are turning around and looking at next time. And you're also looking at next time in terms of the pros and cons, which is obviously the the, the very smart way of doing it. Um, it's a really, really interesting question. What should we do when the first birth was complicated in all the ways that you identified or, or in different ways for somebody else? Um, uh, what are the pros and cons? And, and is planning a cesarean section for the second birth, um, does that just, is that a get out of jail free card? Is that, is that, um, is that free of its own issues? And I think you've highlighted that, that discussion really well with particular reference to prolapse. So let's have a look at, at those uh, pros and cons because there's two major ways of looking at this. When we look at prolapse, um, which is something that reasonably commonly um, affects someone who's had a, a vaginal birth, and uh, in particular in the months and years following that vaginal birth, sometimes the prolapse symptoms of a bulge coming down, possibly a leaky of the bladder, possibly some weakness to bowel function, um, it can be quite common. Then we've got to sort of think, well, well, is it actually worse to do that again? And there are two major schools of thought. One is that the damage, the damage per se has already been done and that the, uh, and that the weakness in that tissue is, uh, has already happened and we're going to have to deal with that in the medium to long term. And why don't I just have another baby vaginally if that's what I want? Because um, you know that that's already happened, and a second birth's not going to make it significantly worse. And of course, the contrary school of thought is: I've had some damage to my pelvic floor. I don't want any more. Let's have the next baby via a different method of delivery. So, which one's the which? Which is the right one? Well, we don't we don't actually know for sure. It's probably an easier discussion if we look at something like third degree tear, which you didn't describe, but third degree tear is where tearing goes into the anal sphincter. That situation, we actually have more evidence because it's broadly thought and certainly a point of view supported by our colleagues in colorectal surgery that the anal sphincter may only have one significant tear in it. Um, So if we get a tear that goes right down into the anal sphincter and it's picked up on the day of delivery by 
an expert obstetrician having a look at it, identifying it as a third degree tear, taking that woman to theatre, um, uh, expertly repairing that tear, and then putting that woman into a program of pelvic floor physiotherapy uh, that we're very, very likely to get good results in terms of long-term um, anorectal function and, um, and uh, bowel continence. Remember that after we've had a baby, we need to be able to, we need our backside to work well enough that we don't, don't leak from our backside and that we can hold in a fart. Uh, so you're in a lift, you need to fart, it, not, it can't leak out. That, that, these, are, these are good everyday measures of anal function. So uh, the theory goes that, um, that if we go really, really well, identify the tear, fix the tear and do the rehab, that we'll probably have normal um, anal function. And if we get a second tear, even with it being identified, even with it being expertly repaired, it may not go as well in the long term. So I think it's a relatively easy discussion to have if the patient's had a previous third degree, because there is some evidence to suggest that caesarean section would be beneficial. I don't think when it comes to outcomes like second degree tearing, some vaginal laxity, perhaps even some mild urinary incontinence, that, that we can um, say that another vaginal birth will necessarily make that worse. It might be true that just another pregnancy makes it worse, and it's not terribly important how that baby's born. So we probably, when we're looking at the, uh, another baby, in, the, in, in your case, in the, in, the, in the situation that you described, then we need to take a number of things into consideration, and one of those would be anxiety and mental health about it all. And I think, for in, in, you know, in, in my um, private practice, I would, I would place a lot of importance on that, how the woman had sprung back from that first delivery mentally, how much anxiety she had about having another baby vaginally. Uh, you mentioned, interestingly, um, that, the, that there might be a downside to caesarean section in, the, in this setting uh, in terms of cutting through the core. I'm not sure that that... that, that particular concern is well-founded. I think that um, having a baby by cesarean section is going to be kinder to uh, the pelvic floor um, very likely. Um, It's not going to come with a risk of third-degree tearing because that's not the way the baby's not coming out through the vagina. The the technique for cesarean section um, involves making a cut in the skin, but when we get down to those rectus abdominal muscles, abdominus muscles, the, the strap muscles that go up and down, but we don't cut through those muscles. We find a hole between them, stretch them sideways, and get down to the uterus by going between those muscles. So I don't believe that caesarean section in itself, with the modern technique, um, uh, disrupts that um, muscular function to a really important degree. That's not to say that caesarean section doesn't have its own issues and they need to be weighed up in individual cases against the pros and cons of vaginal birth. So it brings in other things, um, uh, you know, an increased risk of deep, deep venous thrombosis, an increased risk of, um, of uh, wound infection, and also possible issues related to having had a caesarean section if, you, if a woman wants more babies in the future. But does it seriously disrupt the function of the so-called core? I, I think in the medium to long term, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. So I hope that 
that answer hasn't made things more difficult for you or more complex for you. But uh, I think it's definitely one that needs careful uh, discussion with with your team uh, because um, like a lot of really good questions, there's serious pros and cons either way. All right. So we're going to move on to Matilda now. Matilda um, has a story to share with us and, and um this is another one that's close to my heart. I'm wondering if it's possible to elect a Caesar in the public health system for my second birth. With my first child, I had a very long 26-hour back labour where I was denied many interventions and many pain relief options. Um, it resulted in a postpartum hemorrhage where I had to go to theatre and have a backy balloon inserted because I lost 1,700 ml of blood. I really can't imagine going through something like that again and I'm not sure if I have to pay up for private health and go through the private system if I want to elect a Caesar. I was just wondering what your opinion is and what you would recommend. Fantastic question, uh, Matilda. Thanks for getting in touch. I'm sorry to hear about that uh, very complex um, first um, uh, birth and I hope that um, uh, with with time, um, you get some a resolution about that. You're asking the, the you're asking the right question, and it's one that's dear to my heart. I think to answer it accurately, we need to go back in time a little bit. Um, if we go back a long time, cesarean sections used to be dangerous. In the early days of um, medical care, the regional anaesthetic, the spinal anaesthetic, hadn't really been developed, and cesarean sections would be done under a general anaesthetic which had its own risks, then the technique for a safe, relatively bloodless caesarean section hadn't been developed. They would cut up and down on the uterus instead of side to side, which made the uterus very hard to put back together, and blood loss was very high. Hysterectomy related to high levels of blood loss was common, and a caesar, therefore, was an absolute last resort. Now, these days, we've, we've sort of fixed practical, practically all of those issues. And caesarean sections, say what you like about how many we do and whether we do too many or not enough, um, it's, it's certainly quite a safe operation to have. And for that reason, I think that caesarean section uh, really needs to be on the table for someone in your exact situation. And it needs to be an option, I believe, that you can have just because you want to have it. You don't need to meet a hospital's criteria for it that may not match your own. Now, this is just my personal view. Uh, I'm not in charge of anyone's hospital, let alone your hospital. But I do think that um, it's, a, it's a discussion that as a community we need to be having. Family sizes are getting smaller. People are having fewer pregnancies. And it seems to be more and more absurd to deny that option to people who, after careful consideration, believe that that's the way to go forward for them. I find your story from your first delivery very compelling, and uh, I don't mind saying if you, you know, if I saw you as a, if I saw you or someone with your story as a private patient and that person wanted a cesarean section, I would say that it's absolutely fine. There's no further discussion. And the public system's a little different. They there are there are issues of um, resource allocation and so forth. But I do believe that that your story is is certainly compelling. And I would have thought that the doctors in your hospital, um, all they really need to do was to make sure that you were well aware of the risks and benefits either way, that you were aware that caesarean section is not necessarily a get-out-of-jail-free card and that caesarean section comes with its own, risk, with its own risks. Um, 
But in your situation, they're not going to involve the same risks as last time. And um, mentally, it might be a picture that you are much, much more able to, to, uh, to cope with. So you mentioned about needing to go private to achieve that. And I think you don't, I think, I think you shouldn't need to go private to achieve that. One thing I think that your hospital, your public hospital should be able to do for you, and this is what I suggest you do, is very, very early in your contact with that hospital. First visit, we sit down and we talk about, am I going to, am I going to, can I have a cesarean section just because it's my preference? Number one. And number two, are you going, do I need to talk you into that? You know, what is, what is the process for getting that done? Because I think that the, one of the troubles people come into in the public system is a lack of continuity. The thing that people love about the private system is seeing the same doc every time. In the public system, you will definitely see a different person each time. The standard of care is very high, uh, but continuity is not good. So we don't want to be told yes by one person and then no by somebody else. So what I would seriously encourage you to do is open that discussion early. Get your agreement that that's the way this baby's going to come out early and have that marked very clearly on your file and, and it needn't to be up for any further discussions. I really hope that goes well for you. Good luck. Moving on, we've got Janelle. And uh, let's have a listen to Janelle's story and then we'll discuss it. Hi there, my name's Janelle. I've been listening to your pro- podcast for about five months now. Um, I was actually still on the pill when I began listening. And shortly after I came off the pill and me and my partner began to try to have a baby. I became pregnant within six weeks of coming off the pill. And unfortunately, at nine weeks, I went in for an ultrasound and the baby had no heartbeat. Um, A week after that, I decided uh, to have a DNC. Um, So I've recovered physically from that. Um, There's still some emotional healing to go. But I just want to know um, what your thoughts are on conceiving after a miscarriage and specifically a DNC and how long to wait uh, before trying to conceive again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Janelle. Thanks for getting in touch and, st- uh, and sharing that story. Um, this is another great one because this is an everyday clinical practice question in, in, um, in obstetric practice, not a rarity, not a... Not a um, not an obscure situation, but something we, we, we have every single day or every, or every single week. Uh, so I'm sorry to hear about your pregnancy loss. Um, it sounds like it was well managed. A little bit of time um, elapsed to, to see if the pregnancy would, um, would uh, to see if the uterus would evacuate itself. That didn't work out a DNC. And now we're sort of thinking about trying again. Firstly, well done, well done for your resilience. This is um, excellent that you're turning around relatively quickly and, and, and trying again. So, so how soon is too soon? I honestly see this as a matter of emotional recovery. I do not see this as a, as a uh, medical, physical thing. So um, I think the emotional recovery seems to take somewhere between two weeks and many months. And, and occasionally, if it takes much longer than that, then that's um, probably somebody that we really needed to have intervened with their recovery and their mental health more more than we did because we hate to think of people um, you know taking so long to recover that it um, that it, it affects their overall um, pregnancy as uh, overall family size so let's um, turn to your, your um, situation you are keen to try again which is great the only advice I tend to give my patients is that is that it's nice to have one period after the curette just to tell you when the new day one is 
So it's a little bit variable when the cycle is going to return after a curette. So I, I just usually say to people, it's going to take somewhere between four and six weeks for a first day of a period. And it might be useful not to become pregnant in that first cycle because um, then you'll know when the, when the new day one is. That's going to tell you when the new day 14 is and you'll know uh, when to concentrate uh, intercourse to um, conceive again. If people go straight back to intercourse and straight back to trying again, then it's just wise that if they haven't conceived, if they haven't had a period um, by that six-week mark, it's just worth checking that you're not already pregnant again, because ovulation comes first before menstruation, and you might you might have already conceived again. I've certainly seen that several times. So um, so good luck. This is a matter of when you feel ready, emotionally ready, and ready to give the new pregnancy your full emotional attention and uh, beyond that it's 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 there's there's not a uh, medical or a physical time limit it's when you feel the time is right for you guys to try again good luck so last one i think is from sophie and sophie's uh, got an interesting question about um a history of um intrauterine growth restriction let's listen to her story hi dr pat and bridget uh, my name is Sophie and I really love listening to your podcast. It's one of my go-to podcasts to listen to when I'm driving in the car. Uh, I have a six-month-old baby girl and she was born a little bit early because she had IEGR, low fluid, and the placenta had to stop working. My question is whether there's a genetic component to that as when I was born and my husband was born, we both had the, or our parents both had the same thing since I'm working and uh, we were both small. Just wondering, yeah, if it's a coincidence or if there's a chance, like if we, ha- when we want to have another baby, whether that's something that's likely to happen again. Thank you. Excellent question. Great idea to listen to the podcast in the car because that's how we get, that's how we get the partners list- listening. The, um, we, we had a terrific message come through once from, from a, um, from a woman who said that she'd struggled to get her partner on board with the podcast until she put it on in the car, and then he just got into it. And then when they arrived at wherever they were supposed to be going, he didn't want to get a, get out of the car. He wanted to listen to the end of the episode. That's fantastic. Uh, so um, IUGR, intrauterine growth restriction. Um, so a small baby um, usually picked up because the tape measure measurements of the belly are not big enough in the in the third trimester, or maybe a, an ultrasound has picked it up, and. Uh, some of those are just small babies and, and sometimes small babies belong to small parents. And we're always very careful when we're interpreting third trimester growth in, um, in uh, fetuses uh, to make sure that we have a bit of a look at the parents and say, and in the back of our mind, we're thinking, well, just what is the growth potential of this baby? Um, if this baby's sitting around the 20th centile, but really, really well, and mum and dad are both short. Well, there's your answer. Uh, similarly, if we've got a baby um, that's on the tenth centile, but mum and dad are both well over six feet tall, then that baby for them might be too small, even though it's not strictly in that bottom five percent. So we have to do. We do definitely take um, uh, the maternal and paternal histories into into consideration. Um. What's happened with you guys is is probably not a coincidence. There probably are some genes for third trimester growth restriction. But 
overall, it's not terribly important in your case now whether this is a coincidence or whether it's a gene because we try and concentrate on what we call modifiable risk factors. See, we're all stuck with our genetics. That's already happened. And so it's of some interest and certainly some research interest to see whether there's a, whether there's a gene that codes for this sort of thing. But ultimately, that's not going to be something that we're going to be able to modify, whereas we can modify the other causes of growth restriction. So remember those are smoking status, hypertension, preeclampsia, severe diabetes, and so forth, the things we, the things we can fix. Okay, so um, if we look at um, your uh, next pregnancy, uh, the, the payoff, if you like, will be in modifying any modifiable risk factors. So if you're smoking, you've got to stop. If you've um, got any hypertension, we're going to treat that aggressively and early. Uh, is there a role for aspirin in an upcoming pregnancy? Probably. Is there an, a role for calcium in an upcoming pregnancy? Probably, especially if the growth restriction was related to preeclampsia. Um, but um, the gene situation might remain just an area of somewhat academic interest. The key to managing the third trimester of your next pregnancy is going to be surveillance. So it's definitely true that a woman's had a, a woman who's had a significantly growth restricted baby, not just a small baby, but your your um, uh, pregnancy, your first pregnancy, also had evidence of actual placental dysfunction, in that the um, in that the uh, level of water around the baby was um, was too low, and I think maybe from your question that the assessment of the flow down the cordon within the baby may have also been abnormal. So that's the real deal. This is not just a not just a um, genetically small baby, but a baby affected by a placenta that's not working at its peak, and that has a recurrence risk, and it might happen again next time. So in the third trimester, very careful assessment of fetal growth, ultrasounds, ultrasounds that will be done, even if the tape measure shows that the baby seems to be growing normally, and. And and uh, what we call a, a you know a high index of suspicion. We're going to be watching that second baby closely and seeing if that um, growth restriction pat- pattern is coming in again. And we tend to start looking several weeks before the growth restriction became apparent in the first pregnancy, because we get to cheat a little bit and go to school off the first pregnancy to direct us as to how closely to watch the second. And just like last time, um, we often do surveillance and every time we do the surveillance we in the form of ultrasounds and CTGs and clinical examinations we make a decision is this baby better off in or out if the answer's in we carry on do some more surveillance next week if the answer's out then we move towards delivery so I'm sure that'll go well for you and thanks for your question thank you for listening everybody this was our um, last episode for the year and I know Bridget's bummed to have missed it because uh, you know um, she really loves talking to you guys as well um We've got lots of fantastic stuff planned for next year, some more guests, some more interesting topics, and um, we're going to be back to make some more podcasts again uh, mid-January after a little break. In the meantime, if you're trying for a baby in 2024, please join us in the 11 Steps to Make a Baby program. If you're having a baby in 2024, we can support you with our bite-sized, information-packed pregnancy, birth, and postpartum online program. This is a realistic and expert-led information program that we give to all our own pregnant patients to help them navigate the massive life change of growing a baby. Both programs are linked in the show notes or on our website, growmybaby.com.au. 
Thanks for all your support in 2023. We know your listening time is precious, so thank you for spending it with us. Have a great Christmas, and uh, we're really looking forward to having you guys back with us next year. <laughs>